Hey fellow nerds, I'm Megan Smiley and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've gotten into practice, looked around and thought, so this is my life? I get it. You're in deep and you feel stuck. You may have no idea what the next step would be, or maybe you have an idea, but think it's unrealistic. I truly believe that there's a path forward for each of us if we're intentional about finding it. And this podcast will be a great source of advice and inspiration for you to make that leap to a more fulfilling career. Hey guys, excuse my voice, I'm sick, but my guest today is Lisa Rosen. She's the Chief Operating Officer at SustainCert. Uh, she used to be a litigator, and I think her story really um, shows how you can move into a new field without, quote-unquote, having the experience. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. I feel like it's been a year in the making. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. yes, it has definitely been a year in the making. I'm really excited that we finally made this happen. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to blame the pandemic. Yes, let's, let's. It's a good thing to blame. <laughs> I blame the pandemic for everything, whether it's actually responsible for my shortcoming or not. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to start where I start with everyone and ask you, what took you to law school in the first place? Yes. So I actually decided to go to law school. Um, my story is probably similar to a lot of stories, but, um, you know, when I was seven or eight years old, I had a really close family, uh, family member. My grandfather sort of commented that I was quite assertive and combative Yeah. <laughs> um, and that I would make a really good lawyer. Um, and this was in the early eighties. And so he sort of said, uh, so I started going around telling people that I was going to be a lawyer. And then he got a little more specific and said, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer, you should be a corporate lawyer and focus on Japan because, um, because those lawyers are all charging, you know, several hundred dollars an hour. And, and that, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer, that's what you should do. So it's it's funny because I because of that uh, I was very very close with my grandfather. Um, I went on and in college studied Japanese because he told me to. Right. Uh, all those years ago, and ended up spending a year in Japan studying abroad, and then ended up going to law school with the intent on becoming a corporate lawyer who focused on Asia. Wow. Um, yeah. So I sort of followed through. Well, st- started <laughs> started to follow through on his advice, you know, whether it was good. I think he, he gave me that advice with the best of intentions, but, um, you know, I, I, I didn't get all the way there. (laughs) (laughs) So was law school at least sort of, you know, did that feel like a good, yeah. I loved it. Um, I had a great time. I actually really liked school. Um, I would be a professional student if my husband would allow me to. Um, (laughs) I know someone like that. A friend of mine, her mom is a doctor and her dad stayed home with them. And she was a doctor at at Dartmouth. Anyway, basically, her dad has like five PhDs. (laughs) Yeah, I know someone who went to Harvard Med School and Harvard Business School. And I'm like that. That sounds like the life. Like you're just perpetually in school. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, um, I, I loved law school. I had a great time. I actually studied abroad in law school in China. Yeah. Um, in Hong Kong, and uh, had a wonderful time. So I really, really enjoyed law school, and 
um, have thought actually about going back and, and teaching. Um, I taught one semester at Tufts. I taught climate change in the law. Um, <laughs> and it's teaching's a lot of work. So I think oh, it's yeah. something that I'll, I'll do once I sort of retire and retire is kind of in air quotes. But, right, um, right. I think I would really enjoy teaching because I just really enjoy the academic environment. Yeah. So you did not become a lawyer who practices in Japan or with Japanese clients per se. What did you do after law school? So I uh, got a job at a firm in Boston, um, <clears throat> which is where we met. Yes. <laughs> I knew the answer to that question, but I ask it for the benefit of the audience. (laughs) I was your your mentor. Yes, you Um, were. And so I really went into that firm thinking I was going to do corporate law uh, and um, had a couple of experiences that worked great uh, with the corporate department, um, but just kind of realized it may not be the lifestyle that I was looking for, Um, you know, going in. I mean, there were some things I really liked about it, right? Like, Going in on a Wednesday and not going home until Friday—that um, was one of the first deals that I worked on. Yeah, I we were closing two deals at the same time for the same client. Um, I ended up, you know, spending two nights on the floor of my office. Ugh, yeah, um, sounds familiar. And, <laughs> yeah, it just there was a lot of camaraderie and delirium, which was really yes. fun. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I did want to get married and have kids and. Um, I didn't think that that was a lifestyle that would really be flexible in the way that I needed it to be if I ever wanted to have a family. Yeah. I also, you know, you sort of, um, at any big firm, you meet a cast of characters. Yeah. Um, and I had a couple of bad experiences with some of the, the, the corporate folks. Um, and so I was just like, no, I don't, I don't think this department is a good fit for me. Yeah. Um, and I had some really good experiences with some folks in the litigation department. And so that... I think it kind of surprised everyone because when I started, I, I was pretty firm with them that I wanted to be in the corporate department and then um, decided yeah. to, to decided at the end of my first year that I wanted to switch. Um, but think, you know, thankfully, they allowed me to do that. And so I'm grateful that they allowed me to do that. Um, and I landed in the litigation department um, instead. Yeah. And how was that? How did you enjoy litigation? Um, I, I actually really enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed the art of creating a brief, like doing all the research, pu- putting the pieces of the puzzle together and coming out with a brief. It's really gratifying gr- gratifying to write, you know, what you think is a really strong brief. Um, I actually really enjoyed, you know, the rules of procedure um, and kind of how do you manipulate those to, to get where you want to go. And um, there was a lot that was really intellectually challenging yeah um and sort of the build-up to litigation to to you know being in court or going to an arbitration which is kind of a rarity these days but that was that was a lot of fun yeah um and and i really enjoyed it um i ended up switching firms um because the timing was such that salary salaries were really sort of rising Mm -hmm. um at a fast pace at the time and so i just ended up getting an offer from a bigger firm that uh, offered to pay me a lot more money to do the same thing. And yeah. so <laughs> I, I ended up switching. Um, but actually, in hindsight, I, I mean, I, I'm very happy with where I've landed. But what I should have done, you know, with the benefit of hindsight is if I wanted to practice law uh, at a firm was go to the smartest guy in the litigation department um, and tell him that I 
you know, wanted to learn everything, you know, a man or a woman, you yeah. go to them and say, say, you know, teach me everything you know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard for you. Right. Um, because there were some very, very smart people in that department. And I, I think I was just too young and too easily swayed by dollars. Not yeah. Not really understanding like the after tax value of my time. Like it really wasn't that much money in hindsight, in hindsight, but at yeah. the time, you know, you if you're 24, 25 and someone dangles an extra 30 or 40 grand in front of you, you're just like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's meaningful. It's a lot of money. Um, and then I ended up switching uh, to the to the bigger firm and staying there for a couple of years. Yeah. So at what point did you start to sort of think mm, maybe like big firm litigation is not for me? Yes. So while I was at that bigger firm, um, again, you know, a cast of characters, there were some folks who were just amazing at this firm, and I'm really grateful to have gotten the chance to work with them. Um, And there were some people who were not as great. Um, And so I I was involved in a litigation where I really questioned the motives of the partner who was the the lead on that. And I strongly suspected that he was kind of making up work just to pad the hours that I was spending on the case. Um, And I found that to be extremely distasteful and probably unethical. Um, You know, he could justify it, um, but I, I, um, I had my suspicions as to, you know, where his motivations really uh, were. And I just, you know, when you find yourself coming into work each day and saying, is today the day that I'm going to lose my license to practice law? (laughs) You know, is is today the day that I'm going to get disbarred? Um, You know, it's, it's, it's not good. Um, And, and the work that I was doing too, you know, I've always been um, an environmentalist and I uh, actually focused my undergraduate um, studies on climate change and the work that I was doing just was really antithetical to that. And so uh, it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up leaving. Uh, and, and that was one of the real motivations. I mean, it was in part, the work was sort of contrary to my personal values. Yeah. But it was, it was also that I really thought that guy was going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I didn't want my name attached to that. Yeah. And that's crazy because like you're, you know, still a junior associate and how do you balance that? It's not the first time I've heard someone say something like that. Just sort of. I was, yeah. I was a mid-level at the time. Yeah. And, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if you're junior, mid-level or senior, you're not, you're not the revenue generating partner and therefore you have no voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they are, the firm is not going to side with you. They're going to side with the person who is generating revenue to pay these big salaries. Right. Um, and so if he's collecting, they are going to look the other way. And they did for quite a while. I mean, I think the music stopped on that um, after I left uh, for the, for, for this person, mm-hmm. or actually it was two people. Um, the music stopped for them um, shortly after I left. But um you know, I just think that um, that the, the the law firms are, are the people who have the most gravity and whose opinions are most important are the people who are uh, collecting. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, were you just kind of like, I'm done with law firms all across the board? Like, what did you think about when you thought about your next step at that point? Yep. So this was 2008. 
Um, and so at the time it feels like a lifetime ago, but, um, it was the, it was, um, well, it was really, yeah, it was 2008. Um, McCain and Obama, uh, were both running for president and they were both talking about cap and trade, Mm -hmm. um, which is a program, um, to drive, um, greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So the idea is that, you're a company, you get a certain amount of permits to emit emissions reductions. And if you, uh, or sorry, to emit emissions. And then if you exceed your cap, you have to go into the market and buy more. And there's a variety of ways that these permits can be sort of generated. They're Mm -hmm. called carbon credits. They're called uh, carbon credits. Yeah. And so that was really my academic background. And I had studied that um, under the Kyoto Protocol and um, really thought that this would be a new market. Um, I had tried to get my firm to invest in building a carbon credits group, and and they did that, but I got in a lot of trouble for spending too much non-billable time on it. Mm. Um, And so I basically decided to leave and try to enter this market, and and that's what I did. So I got a job at um, a Swiss nonprofit called the Goldfinger Foundation, which is a carbon offset certification standard. It was founded in 2004 by the World Wildlife Fund, hmm. uh, by, by WWF, the, the panda, not, not the wrestler. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so uh, they were looking, so everyone thought that cap and trade was going to be the next big thing in the U.S. And so they were looking for somebody to open up their U.S. office. Um, and so I applied, and after a really rigorous apprentice-like interview process, uh, I, I, ended up, yeah, I ended up getting the job. Um, and it was, it was exactly where I was meant to be at the time. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a law job. Um, it was really more of a marketing job. Um, but I, I think the woman who was in charge of hiring me really liked my legal background and liked the Mm. critical, you know, thinking skills that I brought to the table, um, and the work ethic. Yeah. Uh, because I think the law firms really Mm. do a good job of, you know, um, you know, churning out workforces. Um, and so I was, I was just ready to work and, um, and, and she put me to work. Yeah. Um, and so the, what happened was, um, of course, Obama was elected and he didn't pursue cap and trade. He chose instead to pursue, um, you know, uh, uh, health, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you got uh, Obamacare. Um, and so, um, I kind of went to my And then CEO. there was no more that has <laughs> happened. No more work. <laughs> right, right, right. But I was sort of looking at this like, oh, yeah. like these guys yeah. just hired me to open up their U.S. office in anticipation that there was going to be all of this activity. And now there's nothing. Right. Um, and so I went to my CEO and, and legitimately said, you know, uh, because this was true, um, I see that you guys are doing a lot of, of legal work and you're outsourcing a lot of this stuff to outside counsel and you're spending a lot of money. Um, let me manage this um, and I'll manage down the fees. And some of this work I could probably even do on my own. Yeah. Um, and he was like, that's a great idea. Why don't you be our general counsel? <laughs> and I said, great. <laughs> I just want to stop and be like, you know, I feel like this is, a lot of people would love to do work at a place like this and then just suggest themselves into a general counsel role. And yeah, um, it was, it was, crazy. it was great. I mean, it's it, well, 
I did take an enormous pay cut. Okay, right? yeah. So, so, so that is like I was making a quarter of what I was making. Yeah. Um, at my firm, but that was a conscious decision, right? I made that trade off. Right. right. Between money and lifestyle, I was now working a forty-hour work week with people I really enjoyed. We were all mission driven. Yeah. Um, and the and the work was really exciting. I mean, at, at this point, it was two thousand and nine. Climate change was not as mainstream as it is now. I yeah. Mean, people were still viewing carbon offsets with a lot of skepticism. I was still kind of, um, you know, labeled a tree hugger, like. Yeah. Even though, even even though at at, at its core, a, a carbon offset is a market-based mechanism. You're using markets to incentivize right. positive behavior change. Um, you know, we want people to generate or to build profitable carbon offset projects. Yeah. The way we recommend that they're done, because then more of these projects will will happen, which is great for the people and the planet, right? And so. It's just, it was funny to yeah. me that people were labeling me a tree hugger. I'm like, I'm actually like an environmental markets person, but okay. Um, and so, um, so it was really wonderful that my boss let me carve out this new role. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of flexibility. Um, he gave me a lot of leeway. Um, and I think it worked out really well. Um, it was also really eye-opening when I started managing our legal books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> because, you know, now I'm on the other side of the table yep. um, and all of a sudden, you know, the most basic of tasks ends up costing a few thousand dollars. You know, we're, we're a small nonprofit, you know, that so I needed to do something about that. Right. Um, that that was just not going to fly. Um, and it sort of confirmed a lot of my suspicion about the law firm business model yeah. um, that I had had that had caused me to leave, right? Which yeah. is like, yeah. there's, an, there's like an inherent conflict of interest between a law firm that bills by the hour and a client. Right. Because as an, associ as an associate, your incentive is to bill as many hours as, as humanly possible. Yeah. Right? And, and you get that message very clearly. I've told this story before, but yes. you'll appreciate it because yeah. it was at our shared firm. But, you know, <laughs> at my first review, it was like, oh, Megan, you're great. Like this, that. Everyone likes working with you. Like good quality product. Now, your your bonus is, is small because, you know, you didn't you didn't bill a lot over your right. minimum. Um, but if this were for quality, it would be much higher. Right. <laughs> it's like you can't believe you right. said that out loud. <laughs> right, right. They said the quiet part out yeah, loud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. So now that I've been, you know, on the other side of the table for a really long time, it is crazy to me that that is the way a lot of firms still operate. Yeah. Um, because it's so hard to find a good lawyer. Um it's super easy to find someone who's willing to bill you a gajillion hours, right? Right. Like to find the lawyer who's going to be super practical. Yeah. And really understand the needs of the business um, uh, and, and really give you solutions that are business friendly. Um, it's, it's really hard to find those people. Yeah. Um, and so I've learned that when you find those people, you pay up because they are not going to bill you a zillion hours, right? Right, like They're going right. to give you the most, the most straightforward answer 
that is the most helpful to you. And even though you're paying, you know, a lot of money per hour, like they spend a lot less time. Yeah. So you end up saving money. But did um, you come across anyone that did sort of like flat fees, value based? So what I started doing, so when I started seeing these legal bills, uh, I was like, this is not acceptable. Um, And so what I started doing was cultivating relationships um, with lawyers and, and talking to them about flat fees. Um, and I was, you know, successful in some cases and unsuccessful in others. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think, um, you know, the, what I tried to use, I used two things to my advantage. Um, one is that um, a lot of people recognize that the carbon markets were nascent and they were up and coming mm-hmm. and that they were just looking for experience. Yeah. So we had deals, right, and things that needed to get negotiated. Um, and so I was willing, I was I, I could find the people who recognize the opportunity to work with us because there's not, you know, there's only three or four main standards in the market. Yeah. Um, and so um, people were very willing to give me their time in, in, in an exchange. They got experience. And right. They could right. Put, you know, carbon markets on their, on their, uh, you know, right. That, that they had experience in this. They could put that on their CV. Um, and then the other thing is there's just so many lawyers <laughs> right? that if you don't want to give me a flat fee, I'm going to find someone else who will. Um, so using that sort of uh, supply right. uh, to my advantage to try to negotiate these. And, and my, my opening line was always, I want you to feel like your, your time is being properly valued by us. Like I do value your time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, what I can't have is an army of junior associates billing the crap out of me. Right, um, right. You know, like, here's what I'm willing to pay for. Here's what I'm not willing to pay for. Here's how long I think it's going to take you to complete this project. Um, here's what I, you know, here's a proposal for a flat fee. Yeah, yeah. And you found people who were receptive to that. Yeah, yeah, there were. Um, yeah. Again, because, because we, were, we occupied such right. a unique space yes. in, yeah, the, in the market. That people were really willing, they wanted to get that experience and say that they worked with us and um, yeah. that, they, that they, you know, understood the dynamics of the market as, as a business development tool, right? Yeah, like yeah. No, did. that makes, yeah, it's, it's sort of like a quote-unquote sexy thing to have on your, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, you... because we, we knew, we knew, I knew that the, the carbon markets and climate change would eventually have to enter mainstream conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. It took, it took 10 years longer than I anticipated. <laughs> right. It has happened. Right. So were you also practicing law? Had you kind of jumped in? How did that sort of fit into your, your sort of career path in terms of where was practicing versus, you know, sort of being more of like a business person? Um, I became more of like a business advisor. So, um, you know, the the foundation is based in Switzerland and I obviously am not a Swiss attorney. Um, So I had sort of several different types of Swiss attorneys that I worked with from intellectual property to employment lawyers um, that I, to general commercial that I could call on if I had questions. Um, I really did a lot of advising our board of directors um, and advising our CEO. Um, so it was a lot on like fiduciary duties under mm-hmm. Swiss law, um, which, uh, you know, I found to be pretty, pretty similar to, um, you know, U- U.S. Yeah. laws. Um, and so um, 
I, I became more of like an, an advisor. Yeah. Um, which I, which I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, I, enjoy, I, I, you know, I know the Swiss civil code of obligations like pretty well now at this point. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's that, that it falls into the same, like, this is intellectually challenging doing the research and putting the pieces together and then talking to the lawyers and then figuring out like what is most practical for my client, which is my board of directors or my CEO. Right. right. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. I thought I, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then, you know, I did that for, uh, like five years and then I moved into, um, much more of an operating role around like 2015. I think I became chief operating officer of the foundation. So what prompted that transition? Um, we had management turnover. So our CEO left and then our CFO slash COO left. And so our CFO, uh, sorry, our, uh, we got a new CEO um, and we needed someone to fill the COO position, but we didn't really have the resources to hire. So I raised my hand yeah. <laughs> yeah. and offered and offered to try to figure it out. I mean, I think... Uh, I it was just I recognized that it was going to be extremely challenging, um, but I thought it would be something that could be really fun to to learn how to do. Yeah. Um. So I took on you know I was already running legal obviously, but um I took on you know HR and IT and you know different functional areas of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I didn't know anything about that stuff. And then at some point I was running software development too. Like we had an outsourced software development team, so I started yeah starting doing stuff like managing a software development team which was really interesting that I was completely unqualified to do because I learned so much yeah um, I just think it's so interesting because you know people like would say if you said oh go be a CEO of a you know nonprofit right out of out of practice people like what are you talking about like I don't know how to do that but it's this idea that you kind of follow the thread of your interest and then opportunities present themselves and that you can learn how to do things you don't know how to do. <laughs> so I think one thing I'm really grateful for that I got um, from both law school and the, my law firm experience is really as being a generalist. Yeah. Um, and so basically coming in like a blank slate and being like, okay, I need to, I need to learn everything there is to know about this topic. Yeah. You know, you become really, really resourceful. Yeah. Um, and so that's basically what I did. I mean, I started running HR and I was like, okay, I don't know anything about HR. Um, so I joined, um, you know, I paid to subscribe to an HR online platform where they had, you know, forums and webinars and, you know, you have to be able to issue spot and figure yeah. out what are the problems my organization is having and how do I solve them? And you basically break them down into their component parts and you solve them one piece at a time. Yeah. But you have to be really resourceful and know where to find those answers. And so I think that's what that my law firm experience taught me is, well, the law school obviously teaches you issue spotting, but yeah. then the law firms really teach you how to be resourceful. Like, where do I look to solve these problems? Like, I remember um, I was doing um, an arbitration uh, at our firm. Um, and I was in North Carolina with a partner. Um, we were in the middle of an arbitration, and it was trade secrets, uh, a trade secrets case. And he found out that actually there was a patent, you know, for a, a piece of technology that was, you know, sort of the subject of. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a patent in, in Japan, right? And he's like, 
how do we get our hands on this Japanese patent? And he, he it was like midnight. Yeah. He's like, he's like, can you try to have this figured out by morning? <laughs> oh my God. Like, okay. Yeah, I can. And so basically what I did was, um, you know, did a bunch of Googling and then called my cousin who was an IP lawyer in New York and was like, how do I get my hands on this, Jap- you know, this Japanese patent? You know, he helped yeah. me. And then it just so happened that I could read Japanese and right. I could figure out like what the pat, you know, I, I could verify that what we had was, was, was legitimate yeah. and what, what we were looking for and basically slipped it under his door at like 4 a.m. Oh my gosh. Um, You're like... <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, I was I'm gonna, gonna go ahead and say that like I that would not have been me. <laughs> I, I I did I did I was like I told you I think he was he was really bewildered. He was like I just can't believe that you were able to do this. But you know it's just that resourcefulness. You're yeah. Like, okay. Who who do I know who knows something about this? Yeah. Um, yeah. That can that can just point me in the right direction. Yeah. Um. And and it was just lucky that it was Japan, and I had you know taken four years of Japanese and lived in Japan and right. figure figure piece this all together. Yeah. Um. But it was really it was one of my brighter moments, I would say. Yeah. I mean, there weren't there weren't that many of them, but um, <laughs> not true. <laughs> that was that was definitely one of them. And uh and and so I think my it's a long winded way of saying that um. You know, I really learned how to be resourceful, and that really that skill, yeah, I think is really translatable across a variety of different roles and organizations, and it gets you pretty far. Yeah, um, you know, it got me, it got me a lot of the way there. It's like resourcefulness, and then just flat out experience, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But it can be applied to... to so many different areas, right? Like resourcefulness is a very generalizable skill, right? You know, apply it to anything that interests you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then it's experience, mostly failures, where you punch your face, punch yourself in the face a few times, and you know, make make mistakes, and you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and think that's we, hard we for lawyers, though, right? Because like we're not really trained to make mistakes and learn from them. We're trained to not make mistakes. Yeah. And I think that I think that is probably one of the hardest parts of practice where you're expected to be perfect all the time and we're humans and we make mistakes and it's so, so painful when you make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and I think what I learned from my experience making a bunch of mistakes at my at the firms was like, okay, if you make a mistake, A, you have to take responsibility for it. Like mm-hmm. do not try to cover it up or shy away from it in any way shape or form yeah and before you go to the partner and tell them that you made a mistake you better have a solution in mind that you've already thought of yeah um because nobody and this happens in in business too right like in my organization i coach people if you make a mistake that's fine um come to me with a solution yeah i don't want to i don't want you whining that you made a mistake i want to know what your proposed solution is and don't start that conversation with me until you've thought through like at least one or two solutions yeah yeah so, I'm like I'm like scared of you now, Lisa. <laughs> no, I think it's I honestly no, I, just, think it's I think it's great. I think the point is you have to allow people to make allow there to be space for that to be part of the culture because it is part of the culture whether you want it to be or not. People are human and they're going to make mistakes, so just allow them to be like, okay, now jump to salute solutions. You know, 
and there's very few mistakes that are fatal. Yeah. Right. Um, I find that most mistakes can be solved with a little bit of thought and yeah. a little bit of pa- and a little bit of patience. Yeah. And so that's exactly it. I, I create a lot of space for people to make mistakes as long as they take responsibility and come to me with a solution. Yeah. Like if you are trying to blame someone else, I, I you know, you can pretty easily tell, right? When someone's yeah. trying to offload blame and that is just so frustrating um and so i i don't have a lot of tolerance for that yeah um i think way more highly of people who fail and then take responsibility responsibility for their failures i want to work with those people again because i know that they're not going to make that mistake again yeah yeah (laughs) right yeah um and so rather than someone who makes a mistake and then tries to blame everybody else around them yeah that's the worst <laughs> yeah yeah who wants to work with someone no, like that who wants to work with that person no yeah i remember i yeah so similar uh so i i i uh gloated about my one bright moment on that arbitration the same time because <laughs> so while i was at this arbitration i missed the filing deadline for another case Um, and which was just, I was beside myself. I was so upset. And so I went to the partner. This is where I learned this lesson. I went to the partner and I I looked up the rules of procedure and I was like, okay, what can I, what can I do here? Um, you know, I had a really good relationship with opposing counsel, which I think was so helpful as another lesson. Right. Like you, you never burn bridges. You treat everybody with respect. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a great relationship with my opposing counsel. I called her up. I explained the situation. She was like, okay. I told her I found this rule. I was going to file a motion, you know, pursuant to this rule, which would give us an extension. She was like, okay, I won't oppose it. Um, and so I went to the partner and was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> good news, bad news. Um, bad news is I missed this filing deadline. The good news is I can file this motion. I've already talked to opposing counsel. She's not going to oppose it. I have it drafted. Can I file this? And yeah. He was like, you know, he looked at me and was, of course, he was annoyed, but he right. was like, go ahead. So yeah. I think that was like a huge lesson where I could have caught, it could have been like a huge deal. Um, but I think because I took responsibility, you know, did my research, came up with a solution, um, and treated my opposing counsel with respect throughout this right. litigation, she was super flexible with me, which I was really grateful for. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, there are a just, thousand reasons to treat people with respect, and that is yeah. one of them, right? <laughs> but, but you, you know, yeah. you'd be so surprised. I just, I just think the practice of law has just devolved into you know grandstanding and egos and people just think that like if you scream the loudest it means that you're effectively advocating for your client like i just it's just really upsetting yeah yeah that's there there are many reasons why law firm life was not the right match for me but (laughs) that's sort of the the yeah the sort of like puffing your chest out culture is just not for me no no i mean for for anybody right yeah. it's so unnecessarily stressful yeah but I, I i see it now i mean we're we i was i'm working on a deal and we're uh negotiating documents um with another party and they're treating it like we're adversaries and it's like guys 
we're all on the same team here. Like we have a common goal. Like there's absolutely no reason yeah. to grant to grandstand here. And I actually look down on those lawyers who feel like it's necessary in order to prove something to their client. I have found that the smartest, most successful people, including lawyers, this, but this is like across the board, are just really humble. Like they don't yeah. have anything to prove. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's those those people who uh, are trying to cover up for some perceived, you know, shortcoming right. or in, insecurity, where they feel like they need to puff their chest out and and put on a show. Yeah. Um. I I I don't want to work with those people. I will never recommend them. You know, I get a lot of friends who run companies or like, do you know someone who can help me with this? You know, I'm having this legal problem. Do you have someone you can recommend me to? Like, I will never, ever, ever recommend someone um, who I have like a, an experience like that with. Yeah. It's just not acceptable. Yeah. Also, how is it that we're so old that we're like, so I have all these friends who run companies. I know. I know. I know. But that's but, an <laughs> I mean, how am I old enough to have two children? I, you know, you know, eight, um, at our at our firm, yeah. they took away my office plants because I killed them. You know, they they give you like a plant when you start. Yeah. You know, and like they they ended up taking mine away. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> and, now I'm re- and now I'm responsible for two other humans. <laughs> oh, how we all evolve. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so I look at my kids. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I've made it this far. This is <laughs> so. Speaking of evolving, you you are no longer at the gold standard, right? No. Well, sort of. Sort of. Um, so we. Uh, so my CEO and I, um, in like 2016, 2017, um, we started looking at the carbon markets and trying to figure out. Um, how we could further scale our business um, and what were the barriers to entry? Well, we started, we looked at it for, we, we started looking at the market from two perspectives. One is, was mission driven, right? How do we break down the barriers to entry to allow more gold standard projects to happen? Mm-hmm. Because a, a gold standard project means two things. It means robust emissions reductions, right? The emissions reductions that are quantifiable and real and permanent. You know, people can have um the, the the security to know that you know they they've said that they've reduced you know x number of tons of co2 that that has actually happened mm-hmm. um and it also represents great benefits for the communities that are hosting the project so when these markets were born you had a lot of companies going in and taking away livelihoods and land from poor communities and mm-hmm. throwing up a wind farm and so WWF was like, that is bad. That can't happen. That's contrary to the intent of the Kyoto Protocol, which is to promote sustainable development, um, which I call community development in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, every gold standard project needs to contribute in a material way to the development of the community. Yeah. So it, so it means those two things. So from a mission perspective, how do we... Um, break down the barriers to entry to people doing more gold standard projects and also how do we scale our business Um, because we we're a nonprofit we're very reliant on grant funding a lot of the climate grant funding at that time is still now you know is being consolidated and there were more environmental NGOs chasing fewer grant dollars so how do we become more financially sustainable 
so we decided to that the solution was technology related mm-hmm. and that we wanted to disrupt the market um and uh really break down the barriers to entry by creating software solutions that would be easy and ex- accessible to everybody that would really drive a race to the top um, for these types of projects and for the voluntary carbon markets. Mm-hmm. So we decided we decided to split the gold standard in two pieces. Um, well, there was another reason too, in that um, the gold standard wanted to become a member of ICEAL which is an organization, it's the standard that regulates standards. It's very mm-hmm. meta. It is. But, um, but fair, but, you know, like FSB, I think is an ICL member, fair trade. You know, we wanted to elevate our brand and become on par with some of these bigger labels that are a lot more familiar to, you know, the general public. Mm-hmm. So we decided we wanted to be an ICL member, and ICL said that we had to split the rulemaking from the project reviews. So we couldn't have those two functions ah. in-house. So we needed to split the organization in half. So we decided to spin off a for-profit, um, and um, we did that in 2019, January 1, 2019, SustainCert opened its doors. Um, and that is a Luxembourg-based hmm. com- company, um, and I was the interim CEO of uh, of SustainCert for a while before my uh, now CEO joined me. Uh, from the gold standard. So she yeah. and I work really well together. Um, we have really complementary skill sets and um, we wanted to continue working together. And so um, she joined me at SustainCert and and here I am. Yeah. So I've, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just sort of, I mean, I think it's just a good example of you don't know where you're, you're going to go, right? Whether No this idea. Was, you know, you never know where you're going to go, but you're just following your interests, following your your passions and your your sort of strengths like I don't think you and I were going to end up at the same place because I think you <laughs> I, I think you might want to work harder than I do <laughs> no I don't think it's about that I so I think it's about so I think what it's about is just grabbing an opportunity yeah. when it presents itself totally right? totally so so my CEO it was her vision really to split the gold standard in two and do the spin-off and we raised a small seed round of funding to fund our initial software development work. Um, and that was her vision, but she needed someone to help operationalize it, right? right, make, right. It, make it make it real. And I could have passed on that opportunity and sat in my role at the foundation and stayed there and kept doing what I was doing. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this is this is new and exciting and, and yeah. it, it was really risky actually in hindsight. Yeah. Um and but I just jumped on it. I was like, Okay, yeah, you need someone to do that, I'm I'm gonna do it. I just yeah. kinda I just I think my career I just if I could, you know, if if I sort of summarize it and simplify yeah. it. I just keep raising my hand and I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, sometimes I'm like, Oh, why did I do that? It's so painful. Learning, yeah. is, learning is so painful. Yeah. It's so hard, but you, I, I do believe that I've come out on the other side stronger. I mean, I think I really enjoy operating companies. I think yeah. it's, it's really fun sort of, you know, creating the engine and, and 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 watch it and then watching the output of that engine right like yeah especially now sustain cert is at such an interesting inflection point yeah and so it's it's um yeah you're basically at like a startup now you know yeah 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 yeah, we're a startup yeah we're a startup um 
and and I, I I I just I'm here because I just keep raising my hand. Yeah. And so you you have to have the appetite, you know, to learn to accept failure that it's going to happen. Um, but really embrace the failure because that's when you do the most learning. And when you as long as you can learn from those failures, right, then you'll come out better and stronger on the other side. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's really happened to me. And I'm I'm just so I'm so grateful that my CEO has let me raise my hand and called on me and, yeah. and, and giving, given me the opportunity to do things that I was not qualified for at all. I mean, <laughs> I know, but this is what people freak out about is, is really like this concern that there's nothing else in the world they're qualified for, but to practice whatever small area of law they have been practicing. And, yeah. you know, part of what I want to communicate to people is, that's not true. It's going to take my, some things might be harder to learn than others and may take more steps. And, um, but you know, you're just, you have all the things you need to figure out whatever it is that you need to figure out for that next role. I think as long as you can, as long as you're resourceful, right. I think that's like a running theme for me. Because if I think about, you know, when I took on Sustainster, uh, we transferred seven people, uh, we were the sort of original sort of uh, team that transferred from the gold standard. Yeah. And then there was a second wave of gold standard staff that came over, um, uh, which is when my CEO came over. Um, but, you know, I was running finance. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, uh, okay. Uh, I need to not only understand, you know, a P&L and a balance sheet and a cash flow statement and how those things tie together. Now I need to put them together. Right now, I need now I need and I need to present them to the board and I need to defend them, um, and so it was like okay, I I've got a bunch of books like <laughs> finance for idiots, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's but but you know finding those resources. So there was a great book that I read that was like finance for you know entrepreneurs, and that basically teaches you everything you need to know. It's like okay, more money needs to come in than we're spending. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get. I get that. The basic <laughs> principles. Yes. <laughs> right. right. But like managing managing cash, right? Because that's yeah. stuff. When you're when you're protected in a bigger firm environment, you don't think about that. Yeah. You don't think about where does the cash come from for this firm to pay me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But then you sort of transition into a more of an operating role, and it's like, oh, yeah. How are we going to generate revenue? Yeah. Um, you know, what are my margins? How do I how do I, um, you know, improve my margins? Like, yeah. It, it's just, it, it's, it's a lot of learning and, um, I really enjoyed it, but I think mm. without that resourcefulness, yeah. well, I don't think I would have gotten the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't exactly. think you would have let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so I want to wrap up, but maybe just like looking back to like, even that first jump you made from from law to the gold standard, and if someone was sort of feeling like practicing law isn't for me, what's sort of one small piece of advice that you would give them beyond the resourcefulness, which is a very good So I think the, the training that you get at a law firm is really a skeleton key. Yeah. Um, because it, there's just a lot of transferable skills there. You know, it's the resourcefulness, it's the work ethic, um, it's the critical thinking. Um, you know, hopefully it's the people skills, um, you know, learning how to manage a team. If you're managing a team of junior associates, there are so many of those skills, um, 
that are just so critical for every type of work environment. And so I would really promote those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think it's really hard to find people who are resourceful and good critical thinkers and want to work hard. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or work smart. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. <laughs> specification. Yeah. Those are actually yes. two different things, yeah. right? Yeah. Working hard is not the same as working smart. Right. And so, you know, just, and, and being process oriented and there's so many skills that even if you don't have the, the technical knowledge, I didn't know anything about the carbon markets when I joined the gold standard, but yeah. I, you know, I sort of, I did my homework, I did my research on, on them and treated on, you know, the, the, tried to translate my academic work yeah. to, you know, work to make it sound like it would be relevant for them. Like right. I had this, that I had this background, right? Yeah. Um, but you pulled from though, like a wide range of things, not just. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not so, it's not so black and white. I think what I've learned is it's really hard to find good people. And so if someone has that foundation, then you can basically do anything. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. As always, it's just personally a pleasure to chat with you. <laughs> I know, I know. But, we'll get to see each other personally. I know, eventually. <laughs> but thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you.